Hello and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, number 50, halfway to 100, which is kind of a big deal in cricket. It's the removal of the helmet and a nod of the head to the crowd. Not such a good idea on a podcast as you can't see me, which may be a good thing. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and do we have a show for you today? Do we? Yes, we do. And in my opinion, known online as IMHO, even though I'm terrible at online acronyms and abbreviations and emojis, it's a good one. Today, we have three interviews lined up for you, one on food security and the threat of cyber attacks in the food and beverage space with Dave Weinstein, CSO of Clarity. We talked to Rebecca Fitzgerald, Marketing Manager for Plant Protein at Kerry Europe, about their new Radical products, and we learn about Arla's assistance in developing the dairy industry in Nigeria with Tim Orting Jurgensen, Executive Vice President and Head of Arla Foods International. And, of course, we have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone. As for the week, well, once a year everyone from our various offices around the world gathers at the headquarters in Crawley, near to Gatwick Airport, to meet up and discuss various things. Like, why can I get from Glasgow to Gatwick quicker than I can from the airport to the hotel a few miles away? Actually, we also discuss things to do with publishing, but we also moan a little bit too. Doesn't everyone at these things? It's also the beginning of the travel season, as all the events start again this month, or at least they seem to. It's kind of tough keeping them all straight, but with all the different airports, airlines, hotels, travel from A to B, and getting press passes, which can be a bit of a challenge. I'm going to an event in November in Bulgaria, and I still haven't been able to make contact. No response to emails, the phone number doesn't work, so maybe I'll be wandering the streets of Sofia with a microphone trying to interview someone about anything. Sometimes press passes can be difficult even when you're on the list because that list doesn't always make it to the people giving out the passes at the front desk. I seem to remember that happened a lot in the music industry. You'd go to a show and the people with the passes never seem to have your name on the list. So it's been a busy week and a flight home today at 7am which sounds okay but as many of you listening also travel a lot As you know, a a 7am flight usually means being up before 4 in the morning, which isn't pleasant. And so I'm exhausted and there was a car fire on the way home that created a detour and it's why the podcast is a little bit late today for those of you that like to download it as soon as it comes out. But enough of me complaining, it's been a nice sunny week here, so why don't we just take a quick look at what's been happening in the news this week? Well, at least in the dairy industry. Japanese company Meiji has set up Meiji Dairies in China. Ketone is acquiring Supercubes in Australia. SIG has introduced Cartons for Good to tackle food loss and malnutrition in Bangladesh. Moon Cheese has redesigned its packaging. And a New Zealand startup has created a collar for, I suppose, remote controlling cows. China's Meng Yu has made a billion-dollar bid to buy Bellamy's in Australia, and there's more at DairyReporter.com. And so to the interviews. First this week, Arla Foods is helping develop the dairy industry in Nigeria. And to tell us more about the situation there is Tim Erting Jurgensen, Executive Vice President and Head of Arla Foods International. 
How is Arla helping with the local dairy production in Nigeria? Uh, what we've done is that we have created a partnership, a public-private partnership that we started a few years ago, where we, together with a lot of NGOs, uh, with governments, with some funding, also with Nigeria authorities, try to establish a end-to-end -end or from cow to consumer value chain, and hereby also setting up an actual milk production and also a commercial operation which could be both sustainable, create better yields and products in Nigeria, but also uh, commercially viable as such. And we have done these pilots now and we have set up these milk stations and worked together with our partners. And we can see now that things are getting into motion, that things are working, that we can see the milk is coming through. And that has then created also a wish from Kaduna State. They approached us and said, hmm, could we actually scale this a bit up uh, now uh, to make sure that we harvest the benefit, but also somehow create an even stronger and more sustainable uh, platform for milk production uh, in Nigeria. That's also what we are doing, scaling up. Uh, and, and, and creating this end-to-end -end, uh, from cow to consumer with a sustainable business approach, making sure that, uh, that we can produce products and that we can create a business that can stick. And once we have done that, we also think there is a good opportunity potentially to scale that up to a somewhat larger scale. And I guess when you go into a country like Nigeria, you want to be seen to be helping as opposed to be taking advantage of any particular situation. For me, there is, there is, there is no issue at all that you need as a responsible dairy company also to take a responsibility for developing the local industry. Uh, we have exports to Nigeria, have, that, have had that for many years. Uh, local production in Nigeria is lower than 10% of what they need to accommodate the consumption. There is a wish to increase the production locally. At the same time, the population of Nigeria, if we look at the projections, would probably grow from around 200 to 400 million consumers in 2050. So there is absolutely a need to both develop the local industry, but also that global companies like Arla Foods take a responsibility to work for sustainable, nutritious dairy products and also take a responsibility for developing them locally, as well as also having a strong, uh, innovative uh, product portfolio that we also take out of Europe. And, and what does the industry there need in terms of infrastructure? I assume that you're working with the with the local governments there to, to make it work. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a need for a lot of things, but what I think is encouraging is that when we combine the dots and when we put the right partners together, we can see, at least in small scale, that things can uh, work and that we can create uh, and develop some good products. But what we need is to set up uh, proper farming, uh, and that's the government that uh, together with partners that will do that, that the quality of the milk, the milk station, the cooling of the milk, 
uh, is good that the yields uh, in the milk increase significantly because we feed the cows in a better way. That you have a cool chain, access to clean water for both the cows, but also that we have a production uh, facility uh, which has the standard to produce good, healthy, nutritious uh, products. And then the route to market, where we also then have the commercial string to make sure that the products are going into the stores and sold in, in, in a proper way in the Nigerian market. So all these things need to fit together uh, and everybody needs to tip in. We tip in with the commercial, with the dairy side, the government to tip in with other things and the infrastructure, availability of water and, 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 and farming land for the farmers. And when we combine the dots, uh, we hopefully will have a strong project that can be scaled up. So I think a lot, of, a lot of times people may think that you just go into a country and help with the improved yields and then make products. But there's much more to it than that, because in many countries, there's issues with transportation and often they're very hot countries. So you've got issues of, of temperature. So it's, as you say, it does involve quite a lot of different components in order to make it all work. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think that is that is potentially the difference of what we have done. A lot of efforts has also been done in, in many other parts of the world, but but I think this end-to-end approach, this approach where you make sure that partners tip in with what they can do, but also in a way that this is not done uh, just as as an aid. It's actually a business model that we put together that hopefully in future also would be competitive. Um, so that it's stick. And I think when we combine all these elements and not only focusing on one part of it, then there's a great chance, hopefully, that it will stick and that we will create a sustainable platform for health and nutrition. And will this help in increasing Nigeria's self-sufficiency? I, I hope personally that that, that that will be the chance that they will increase their local production significantly because that is actually needed. Uh, in order not only to feed the current population, but also to feed uh, the population that will come. With the population growth from two to 400 million, potentially, there is a need that the agricultural production in Nigeria, that they are able to diversify their economy uh, and also take stronger part in producing and leverage the potential that Nigeria has within dairy and other agricultural products. And, 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 And that is definitely something that that we will also support as a global company right and you mentioned scaling up is that the next step or what are the next what are the next stages in this relationship i think i think the important thing is to make sure that we get a proof of concept we have now done that in a small scale now we scale a bit further up and then uh, hopefully if that is sustainable uh, which we hope then i think both us and other partners in in industry will we'll hopefully uh, take them, this model and create more projects of, of that kind and scale it up so that, so that the entire impact on, on, on Nigeria will increase. And are you working in multiple states in Nigeria? Um, at the moment, it's, it's Kaduna State uh, that we are working with. I would like it to, uh, that we focus on it so that we can create this proof of concept and once that has been created and a sustainable business model is working, uh, then, of course, we can take uh, additional steps if needed. 
but but I also encourage others to do the same, uh, and 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 I think that others also working on on other types of projects in Nigeria, in order to uh, contribute also to developing the industry and the agriculture in Nigeria. So this is something that once it's scaled up, you could potentially replicate in other Nigerian states and maybe even other countries within West Africa. Absolutely, uh, that is definitely an opportunity that we have. But we have a lot of these kind of projects in different forms and, and formats. We have something going on in Bangladesh. We are working also in China. We are we are working with all these elements because we believe, as a big global company, uh, we also have an obligation to take a global responsibility to make sure that we do our utmost to also uh, be part of of securing nutritious dairy products both locally produced and also uh, from our own production. And I guess it also makes sense from a carbon footprint angle as well, if you're producing locally as opposed to importing? Yeah, it could be. I, I still believe, and that's also why we need to scale it up, that, that in, in terms of carbon footprint, well, how, the way that we produce in Europe is very efficient in terms of the emission per kilo milk produced where it's very low in Nigeria because the yields are not there yet. So I think there's a great job actually to improve the yields in Nigeria so that the carbon footprint per produced milk can go down. Uh, I don't think at the moment that the transportation is a big thing, but in future, hopefully when we are successful, also more can be produced locally and hereby also reducing the emissions. And now it's over to Ireland for the launch this week of Kerry's new radical products for the flexitarian and plant-based market. Rebecca Fitzgerald is marketing manager for Plant Protein at Kerry Europe. Some exciting new products for Kerry and I wonder if you could just give me a little rundown as to how they were developed and what they are and what they're intended for, that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. So essentially, Jim, um Radical uh, by Kerry launched on Monday, and um, I'm sorry, on Tuesday of this week. And um, essentially, what it is is a global portfolio of taste and nutrition solutions for the plant-based food market. Um, and it's something that we're so excited about, and something that we've been working towards for uh, the last number of months. And I suppose the reason we're so excited about it is because, uh, obviously, as a marketeer, my role was to understand well. What's out in the market already, and how can we differentiate ourselves to, to, I suppose, help our customers grow in the meat alternative and in the dairy alternative space? And I think it's our integrated solution is what does that for us. So, um, ultimately, what the what the portfolio is, um, it's a number of solutions under four pillars. So you have your taste solutions for the meat alternative and the dairy alternative space, nutrition solutions, functional ingredients and then plant proteins or dairy alternatives. And uh, the entire goal is really to have a really simple message to our customers or to potential customers that when it comes to this space, the alternative space, there are challenges around taste and texture and succulence and you know, trying to deliver a characteristic dairy eating experience or vice versa for meat. And we really want to help our customers overcome those challenges, but also in a way that we're helping them create products that are trusted and recognizable and clean label. Because I think that's been a bit of a gap in this space where so many people have focused on taste and texture and getting that right. They haven't necessarily given the same level of focus to nutritional side. 
and that's where we really bring our strength of being a taste nutrition business to life. Um, but even in terms of our position in the space, and again, as a marketeer, what I'm so excited about is we're really speaking in the language of the category. And uh, again, going back to the types of customers that, that we work with and want to work with, we know this is a space that's changing so rapidly. There's so much going on, and it can be scary to move in, particularly if you're working with the likes of customers who maybe have a background in meat or dairy, and they're moving into the space. It is scary to move into it, and we have so many, uh, I suppose, proprietary insight-led research pieces that we can ultimately use to help guide them in this space as well so that they're not just rushing to market because they know the market is growing. They're going to market with something that has longevity behind it. And that's, I suppose, for me, the, the really special thing about what we have to offer in this space. And I'm not talking about necessarily having a ton of new products. It's not about that. It's about really lining up what we have to offer across those four pillars in a really simple way so that when customers come to us, they know straight off the bat we are, we are there um, as their partner through every step of the journey when it comes to the alternative space. I suppose it's a case of um, helping companies that have maybe never been in this particular space before to find solutions, as you just mentioned there, about making products the best that they can be. Because obviously, if you put something out that nobody's going to buy, or they'll buy it once, and if they don't like it, then they won't buy it again. So you have to make those products the best that they can be. And the solutions, I assume, would be different to in meat or dairy products. Totally. And like you said it yourself there, for me, you only get one chance to make a good first impression. And uh, I totally understand that that rush to market to, to gain a foothold when you have so many competitors in this space. But we're in a time where there's this growth of that flexitarian market. And these guys can opt out to, to eat a dairy-based product or to eat a meat-based product if, the, if a plant-based product doesn't deliver the eating experience that they're looking for or doesn't give them the nutritional value that they're looking for. So really, you've got a, a group of consumers with a heightened, heightened expectation. And for me, I really want to help our customers deliver products, particularly if they haven't been in the space yet, deliver products that are going to deliver to the needs of those consumers too. Um, and and um, for the people who already have products out there, potentially there's an opportunity to renovate what they have out there, maybe from the nutritional side. And for the guys that are just starting their journey, start it off on the right foot. And uh, don't just focus on the taste side. Take, take a balanced approach to it. Yes, you need taste to get repeat purchase, that's a given. But the nutritional side for me is something that's probably going to come under a bit of scrutiny in the coming months as people start to understand more and more you know, what is actually going into these meat alternative burgers, what's going into this dairy alternative. And we want to set our customers off on the right foot when it comes to that space. And, and the solutions that you have to help them along, are you talking about um, like texture and taste and nutrition? So the, the whole the whole package of improving products or creating products? Exactly, exactly, Tim, and the functionality side. So there's a number of things you have to take into, I suppose, um, take into context when you're trying to deliver um, and create and craft a product that, that'll fit these consumer needs. And for us, from the taste um, side of things, texture is so key to get right. Um, and I think when we say taste, we're going broader than just the actual flavor experience. It's, everything comes into play here. So if you take it from the meat side, 
uh, the succulence of the product, uh, the tenderness of the product, that all matters. When you look at the dairy side, it's the creaminess, it's the mouthfeel. Those are all things that need to come into play to get that repeat purchase. But then going the next step into the nutritional side, for some areas you're going to need to fortify. For other areas, it's all about clean label. I'm using simple and trusted ingredients. And then when you get to the functional side, you have to think about preservation. People are really keen to avoid wasting food. They're getting way more conscious around the, their carbon footprint and how their diet actually impacts that. Um, and across the board, from the taste, nutrition, functional, and the plant protein space, we have those solutions to really help create products that are going to deliver to these consumer needs. And that's something that, as a marketeer, it's part of my role to make sure we're keeping the consumer insights and the consumer needs at the heart of everything we do. Um, it's all well and good to focus on taste and texture, but if you've got a group of consumers that are starting to increase their, their, um, their plant-based eating, they're going to start looking into the nutritional side of things too. They're going to want products that are going to perform well and that are going to help them have that positive impact on the environment. And again, it's our job to help our customers be able to, to, to deliver that to them. And in terms of um, another thing that often is an issue is the price disparity between non-vegan or non-plant-based products and plant-based. Is that that's also a factor, I would imagine? It totally is. And that's where there's a fine balance between not devaluing what you have out there. If you go in at too low a price, will people believe it's quality? And there is that challenge around some of these plant-based products that potentially haven't delivered on the taste or nutritional side that people don't think they're quality-driven. So it's really key for our customers that they find the balance between being able to create something that has a wider appeal because they're not being put off by being you know, high in price, but they, that it's not too low in price that people feel it's not quality-driven. So it's a fine line that between our business and our customers' business that we help them achieve that, that balance and, uh, and to create something that, again, uh, can fit that mass appeal of a flexitarian market, um, but that doesn't devalue what you're offering. Right. And obviously there have been vegan products and vegetarian products on the market for many years, and they've, some of them are good and some of them not so good. But um, my, my little clever question was what's so radical about radical and in terms of um, what, what, what's different about this that hasn't been brought to this particular sector before? Yeah, and I think Jim from that side of things, there are two, two ways you could look at that. For me, again going back to the fact that I'm a marketeer, um, when I look at other B2B um, portfolios in this space or even when I look internally at our own portfolios, the name is different to what's been done before. It's cut through the noise, it's passionate, and it's full of purpose. Um, I, I, we've mentioned to you uh, previously around what the name actually means. So the actual definition of the word radical is the part of the plant embryo that develops into the primary root. But really, when people first hear the word, they're going to think of the definition of the R-A-D-I-C-A-L definition around revolution and changing consumer. And we really wanted to embody both sentiments so that when we go to market with our message of our integrated solution, that we're cutting through the noise and we're showing the market that what we have to offer is different and that we're speaking in the language of the category because the category is so charged full of purpose and emotion and passion. And for me, our naming and our positioning really embodies that. The second, probably almost more important side to that is the fact that we have that integrated solution. 
which is unique to the market. Lots of people offer individual solutions, one or two solutions, and a ream of um, potentially different brand names or uh, very kind of technical or scientific, uh, scientifically driven. Um, for us, it's a very clear message. We can help you on every stage of the journey uh, with an integrated solution across taste, nutrition, functionality, and plant proteins. So those two areas are probably what makes Radical so radical. Uh, and finally, it's probably our, our business model. It's not enough for us to go to market with um, a positioning that evokes emotional depth. It's not enough for us to go to market with an integrated solution. From start to finish, we want to partner with our customers from the insight side of things. So for me, I feel like a lot of customers or potential customers or people who are moving in this space lack the strategic guidance to make the decisions that are going to ultimately position their products to have longevity in the market and to, to really fit the needs of that flexitarian consumer, which is growing. Um, and for me, there's different types of flexitarian um, consumers too. So there tends to be an idea that there's one type of consumer out there, and, and for me, that's just not accurate. So it's the, the idea that from start to finish, everything we're doing is insight-led, and it's having that really good understanding of the market dynamics and being able to guide customers through what can be viewed as quite a scary space. Um, so I hope that answers your question, Jim, but ultimately it's across those three different areas of bringing insight to the table, uh, speaking in the language of the category, and offering an integrated solution across four pillars. And how important is plant-based to the Kerry portfolio? The plant-based phase is super important for Kerry as a business. We're a taste and nutrition innovation leader, and for us, our heritage in meat and dairy actually positions us really well for this space because we know what good looks like. Who better to partner with than someone who understands how to create a really great meat product, a really great dairy product? Who better to partner with when, when you're trying to create an alternative? So for me, that's where the plant-based space has become even more important. We understand that this there's an increased focus, even from a media perspective, but from a consumer perspective, this is what consumers are looking for. We have to move with the times. Um, and you'll see even across the board that we've invested heavily in this space, even in terms of, of you know, launching this portfolio. It's a global initiative across Europe and North America at the moment, but uh, it, it is a global initiative. And um, uh, we entered into a joint venture last year with Oya. That's more on the meat alternative side, Jim. But you can see that we're continuing to invest in this space. Uh, we have a dedicated plant protein team within Kerry. We know this area is going to grow, and we're setting ourselves and our customers up for success with these investments. And the, the new Radical products, are they available globally? Yeah, so there will be, be regional nuances. So, for example, there will be some proteins that will be available in North America, some, uh, some, some proteins available in Europe, but overall, uh, pretty much the, the across the portfolio uh, uh, globally available. This week, the University of Minnesota Food Protection and Defense Institute published a white paper on food and cybersecurity. We tend to think of cyber attacks as being on big IT companies and very visible companies or even on governments. But clearly the food industry, which of course includes dairy, isn't immune. A company that tackles cybersecurity issues in the U.S. is Clarity, and we spoke with the company's chief security officer, Dave Weinstein. I'm uh, currently speaking to you from New Jersey. We are based uh, as a company out of New York City with 
kind of a global presence, but the majority of our, our uh, research and development out of Israel, um, and then uh, our business operations run out of, out of New York City. We're uh, a startup, as are uh, all the companies uh, in this space. We were founded in 2015, and we've grown pretty rapidly since then to, to about 150 employees. We've raised $100 million in, in venture capital. And our technology, which is a software-based product, is uh, essentially an intrusion detection system for uh, operational technology networks. So networks that kind of control physical processes in a factory or plant environment uh, or, or any type of industrial environment. Uh, we provide uh, not just continuous monitoring of, uh, of those networks, but we also help the owners and operators discover and kind of manage all the assets on the network. So uh, most of, of these environments, these, these operational technology networks, are essentially a, a big black hole to the, the people who own and operate them. And that's not an uh, indictment to the owners, uh, an indictment on the owners and operators. It's just kind of the, the fact of life, which is to say that these networks have never truly been monitored before because A, there hasn't really been technology to do that, and B, there hasn't really been, at least prior to about five years ago, a strong uh, or compelling need to monitor these networks because they've been almost entirely uh, isolated from the internet and therefore not susceptible to many of the cyber risks that they, they now face. So. Uh, a combination of kind of a changing technological ecosystem, one that's uh, increasingly uh, connected, and a pretty active threat landscape has led us to where we are today, which is a strong need to make sure you know exactly what is on your operational technology network, uh, how the devices are communicating, and of course, you know if there are any threats or, or active intrusions uh, ongoing. So obviously, this is a dairy site, so food companies, are, is this something that's on their radar or is this something that they're really, you have to hold the hand to explain exactly what the problems are? It is on their radar. So most people, when they think about what we do, they think about use cases with you know the energy sector, primarily the electric grid, uh, and, and obviously we see uh, a whole lot of demand coming out of out of that industry, but likewise, the food and beverage industry um, has been sending a lot of strong demand signals, uh, just because they obviously uh, are increasingly connecting their their infrastructure for the sake of reliability, efficiency, and productivity, and that brings all sorts of advantages. But at the same time, it also introduces risk. So I would say about Three years ago or so, we probably saw, you know, a, a shift in terms of the level of awareness and demand for this type of technology within the food and beverage sector. And uh, the conversation went from needing to, you know, kind of explaining the value of our technology to them fully accepting the value and just, just thinking about uh, how best to, to deploy it in their environment and uh, which vendor to go with. So uh, there's definitely high awareness 
unlike some other sectors where they, they tend to think nobody will ever attack their network um, and that they're, they're totally immune to, to cyber threats, the, the food and beverage industry, based on my experience, seems to be very mindful of, of the risks and the consequences to their business that are at play here because obviously many of these businesses operate on relatively low margins and uh, any operational downtime uh, to a manufacturing process can have, have really significant impact on the bottom line. And, and how significant are the risks in the food and beverage industry? Well, they're pretty significant. I'd say there's kind of two general things to think about. The first is um, what I'll call, you know, collateral damage from, you know, various global cyber attack campaigns, right? And we've seen this play out in other sectors where malware from a, a single targeted attack uh, has propagated like wildfire across different sectors and, and certainly different geographies, found its way from IT networks uh, onto OT networks and caused uh, significant damages for you know manufacturers and other industrial organizations just in terms of, of, of downtime. I'd say folks in the, in the food and beverage industry are mindful of the fact that given uh, their embrace of digital technologies, specifically networked digital technologies in their manufacturing process, they're increasingly susceptible to collateral damage from other uh, other attacks that are taking place in the global cyber arena, if you will. Of course, the other uh, scenario is is a targeted attack, right? And there's uh, kind of a number of different motivations that could lead to uh, an attacker targeting uh, someone in the, in the food and beverage industry. It could be, you know, a, a hacktivist attack based on environmental positions. Uh, it could be, you know, a state-sponsored actor who simply wants to to take down an organization for competitive advantage purposes. There's kind of a whole slew of, of scenarios that one could conjure up. Bottom line is organizations in this sector are thinking about how they can, given that reality, how they can increase the cost or, or essentially elevate the barrier of entries for attackers that might be motivated and, and capable of, uh, of bringing down their, their manufacturing process. And is this a risk to small companies as well as large ones? Yeah, it is. I think, you know, the, the bigger risk to small companies is probably the uh, collateral damage scenario that I referenced versus the, the target attack. Small companies, uh, although they tend to be uh, a bit easier to attack, tend to not to attract uh, as much attention as, as larger companies from attackers. But it's, it's a universal risk. Of course, most of the organizations that we're working with in this sector are relatively large producers or, or manufacturers in the food and beverage industry. That's largely a factor of the nascency of the field in general, the fact that our products and, and our category uh, is fairly new, and uh, the, the earliest adopters tend to be those with the most mature information security programs to begin with. But over time, especially over the next five years, we expect that much of the, the smaller and medium-sized organizations will start coming into the fold, and this will be kind of a universally adopted 
technology for organizations that have uh, sizable industrial footprints and depend on operational uptime, you know, to ensure profits and, and ultimately bolster their, their bottom line. And I would assume that regardless of the cost, um, prevention is far cheaper than cure. Yeah, that's true. And uh, unfortunately, it's it's kind of in this new era that we live in, the, the cost of doing business, right? Because as you say, the, the cost and attack is, is much higher than the preventative steps taken to, to mitigate the risk. Um, and, you know, there are different kind of gradations of uh, maturity in this space. It, it starts with at the most basic level, just understanding what's on your network, which sounds basic, but when you're dealing with legacy uh, operational technology equipment and fairly kind of distributed and complex networks, it's actually not trivial. Add on top of that the fact that most of these industrial control systems communicate using uh, largely closed and proprietary protocols. Uh, so it requires a, a specialized tool set to not only discover all the devices on your network, but then to, to monitor the traffic between and among these devices because your normal kind of network security tools will not be able to parse uh, what are uh, almost entirely proprietary communications protocols. So that's what we bring uh, to bear. Our technology performs uh, what's known as deep packet inspection on all of the network traffic. We use that deep packet inspection uh, to not only discover all the devices, but then baseline uh, the communications between and among the devices. And since these are largely machine-to-machine -machine communications on these networks, uh, we can detect uh, anomalies and sometimes threats simply based on deviations from the communications baseline that we're establishing uh, on these networks. So there's a, a number of ways that we kind of detect uh, either operational issues or malicious or anomalous behavior, but one of them is just to, just to identify uh, something that's out of the norm with respect to how these devices operate on a day-to-day -day basis. And I guess those threats are constantly changing as well? Yeah, that's right. It's constantly evolving. Um, when, and we're, quite frankly, constantly learning from the experiences of our customers, right? So one of the advantages of our product and something we're, we're rolling out now is a cloud-based solution that, that, that will correlate data sets from across our, our customers' environments. To use a simplified example, uh, if one of our customers is experiencing a brand new type of attack that nobody's ever seen before, we can anonymize that data and use it to benefit all of our customers. And essentially, all of us can learn at the same time, in real time, when new malicious activity is detected. So that's really a, a big part of, you know, staying ahead of the attacker as, as we can then we definitely uh, give ourselves on the defensive side uh, a big advantage. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone. 
It was a lively week, uh, dairy prize-wise, um, this week. The source of strength in the European dairy fat market uh, last week was a source of weakness this week. Cream was down about 500 euros from the 5,000 level last week to closer to 4,500 this week. This didn't have an immediate effect on butter, which seemed to be really playing catch-up on last week's strength in, in the underlying fat market. Quarter four butter was up about 50 euros to the 38.25 level, and quarter one was up about the same to the 38.10 level. Quarter two butter was flat, flat to down slightly at around 38.25 euros a ton. Skim and powder was definitely stronger. Quarter four was up about 100 euros to 23.25, and quarter one uh, up just under 100 euros, 90 euros or so, to the 23.50 level. Same for quarter two, that was also up uh, just under 100 euros to the 23.75 level. This really tied in with physical skim milk powder, which was also stronger, definitely north of the 2200 uh, level. Whey was pretty flat uh, around 660, 670 level this week. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another week. Please join us again next week for our last show in September. And I won't even mention that there are only 95 days to Christmas. A lot of the stores around here have already got the Christmas stuff out. I'm actually waiting for the world's first pre-Advent Advent calendar that counts down November to get to the actual Advent calendar. Now there's an idea, which probably won't work. I'm full of those. And so I'll leave it there and hope you join us again next time and that you have a great week ahead. Thanks for listening. <laughs>